Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you again as we come now to the final sermon in our series on 2 Samuel. And throughout this series, we have seen God establish the kingdom and then how it was, resp- how it was supposed to be run with regard for, for Hesed, the, the steadfast covenant love that we've talked so much about. And then how David held this one part of himself back from God and the disastrous consequences that that had. And last week, Roy really helpfully guided us through the tragic story of Absalom and showed again how God was pointing us to Jesus and his big redemptive plan. After Absalom's demise, David was humbled, he was rebuked, he faced rebellion. Now, there's lots of details there that we we don't have time to look at, but the important context for our passage is that the end of Samuel could have been this tribute to a great king with all of his achievements listed. Instead, what we get is a tribute to a great God and all that he has done. So the idea is to to enter into this section that we're looking at tonight with a a clear sense of God being the one in focus. Our passage this evening, as Christoph said, is from the final section of the book. And and rather than a continuation of the narrative, we get a a couple of events that are out of chronological order and a couple of reports on battles. And these, these reports frame chapters 22 and 23 as being the key parts of this final section. And what we get in this key part is, is a psalm in 20, chapter 22 that looks, looks back at how God has established the kingdom. And then we get a prophecy in chapter 23 that looks forward to how God will establish a new kingdom. So what we're going to do this evening is to look back and to look forward. So let's start with the psalm in chapter 22. Now, if you take notes, there are going to be quite a few really great things to note here. But if you don't, I'd encourage you to follow along here. And then when you get home, reread this passage and try to see the connections that we're going to go through. So look with me at verse 1. Here we see this slower, systematic introduction followed by an outburst of praise. David starts with these staccato statements about who God is, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. But it's not just a, a random, just, just random statements off the top of his head. It's a complex web that he's using to emphasize a point. These statements are actually three sets of three, with a tenth phrase at the end to sum up and emphasize what he's saying. So you can circle or highlight um, with the first set of words that describe God. Rock, fortress, deliverer. And then we get rock, shield, horn of salvation. And finally, we get stronghold, refuge, and savior. Now, I'm I'm trying not to sound too technical here, but the order of these things is really interesting. If you write them out, you will have the first statement in each triplet saying that God is a rock, a rock, and a stronghold. So all that imagery is of something sure, of something certain, of something immovable. Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. That rock is that immovable hope, that sure and certain foundation of God being God and nothing being able to change that. The stronghold imagery has that same sense, something immovable and permanent. Then if you look at the the second word in each of these triplets, we get fortress, shield, and refuge. And so now there's this added sense of protection from enemies. That God is some secure retreat that no enemy can defeat. 
a place of safety. We can think of that shield, like the, the shield of faith against the enemy's hateful darts. So again, it's an image of protection. And refuge obviously has that sense of, of safety and a, and a place of rest. And finally, if you look at the last words in each triplet, there are deliverer, horn of salvation, and savior. Now, don't let that second one, the horn, throw you off. It's, it's an image of an animal horn, but it's used as a symbol of strength. So the idea is really similar to deliverer, like the Lord being the one by whose power we receive salvation. And so the sense of these three endings of deliverer, horn of salvation, and savior is of God saving, of God intervening to rescue. So what David is doing here is, is pinning our attention on God who is unchanging and powerful, where we can find our rest and who rescues us from our enemies. The Lord who is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. The Lord who is my rock, my shield, my salvation. The Lord who is my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. Three sets of three, really intricately bound together that culminate in this 10th phrase, verse four, the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So seeing God in his unchangeable power shows us that he is worthy to be praised. Seeing God as certain as a certain sense of peace and safety shows us that he is worthy to be praised. And seeing God as the one who saves shows us that he is worthy to be praised. Can you see how these how verse 4 sums up and is the culmination of all the other phrases? This truth about who God is means that we know that he is worthy to be praised. Seeing God means that we cannot deny his goodness. We cannot deny his worthiness. Now, you might have heard someone like Christopher Hitchens say, even if there is a God, I want nothing to do with him because of all the suffering about. And because they aren't looking at God, they just don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand who God is. And so they judge the holy, infinite God by their simple and sinful standards. But when David looks to God here, even with all the hardship he has faced, even with all the pain that he has gone through, when David looks to God and sees him for who he is, then he knows that this God is worthy to be praised. So what David is doing here is, is bringing out the truth of who God is. He is reminding himself and us of the truth of what God is like. How often, I wonder, do we do that? How often do we just remind ourselves that God is good all the time? Not in an academic way of, of just saying things, but a, but a real reflective way of meditating on what the scripture reveals about God and just seeing how good he is. David begins his psalm by steeping himself in the goodness of God, by reflecting on who God is regardless of, of what's going on. But we need to keep moving here. So look with me to verses five and six. If the first part of the, this chapter was focused upon God, here we get David reflecting upon his own circumstances. And we get two couplets, one in verse five and one in verse six. So notice in verse five, there is this use of, of water imagery. 
the waves and torrents of death and destruction seem to be overwhelming, David. And maybe you can relate to that feeling of being underwater. Your circumstances and things going on just seeming to drag you down and making it seem like you can't even breathe. But it's not just difficulty. Look at verse 6. It uses images of a hunter. So we've got cords and snares entangling him. Here David is saying that it's not just saying that the life is tough, but that someone is after him. There is some kind of opposition that is actively seeking his downfall. This isn't David just being dramatic or laying it on thick. This is what so many people feel all the time. Distress, anguish, stress, depression. From those mourning the loss of loved ones here to those fleeing persecution in other parts of the world, the normal Christian experience is not of boundless material blessing, but can feel more like David's pictures of being overwhelmed and at risk. Verses like this set out a problem and are designed to get us to ask for a solution. What are we to do? Where are we to turn? And verse 7 gives us the answer. In my distress, I called to the Lord. If you underline things, underline that. Because what David is showing us here is that because he knew the truth of God so clearly, because he had saturated his heart with that understanding, when these terrible circumstances came, he knew where to turn. Because of how tightly he held on to that truth about God, when he felt overwhelmed and hunted, he called out to God. Now, many of you have told me stories about when you were at the end of your tether and you called out to God and, and what he did for you. And maybe as I say that, there's a story that's popping into your head or, or some instances that happen that you can relate to. And I want to tell you that there are people sitting around you, people that you will have tea and coffee with afterwards, who will, after the minute, they'll smile, they'll say all the right things, but they're getting to their end of their tether. With one thing or another, their souls are just desperate to hear of the goodness of God. People who just need reminding so they can just keep going one more week. And maybe your story is going to thing, be the thing that keeps them from despair. Maybe it's going to be the thing that gets them to turn to God and to cry out to Him and to see His goodness once again. So if you have a story, if you can testify to the goodness of God, please love your brothers and sisters enough to share it over tea and coffee. If you're sitting in a group, just say, here's my story. If you're one-on-one -on -one and it's a bit awkward, just say, this story popped into my head and, and Neil told me to say it, so I'm going for it. Hearing these stories helps us to internalize what David just tells us here. That when we cry out to God from his temple, he heard my voice. Our cries of distress reach all the way to the holy of holies, into the very throne room of God. When we are on our knees and feeling so utterly alone and isolated and we cry out into the silence and it feels like that just echoes away into nothing. That very cry is heard in heaven. 
in verse 7, God hears. And in the next lot of verses, God acts. We're going to have to skip some of the verses here, but but go home and, and read through them. And they're a really incredible picture of how God acts for us. But turn with me now to verse 47. Here David is responding to how God has acted for him. And in doing so, he echoes this, his opening to bring the psalm to a close. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Here David is reflecting on what has happened in his life and how God has acted to be with him. And the one thing I want to note is how he finishes. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So what does David identify as a pivotal mark of how God interacts with him? Unfailing kindness. And if you've been with us for this series, I hope that you can guess what that concept is. Chesed, it, it just keeps coming up. Christoph even talked about, about it this morning. The unconditional, covenantal, steadfast, loving kindness that keeps coming up as marking God's action towards his people. David meditates upon God's goodness, reflects upon his circumstances, and concludes that God has acted according to his word, according to the promises he has given, according to who he is. And so in reflecting upon his reign, David shows us here that we can depend upon God, that God is utterly trustworthy, utterly worthy to be praised, that his promises last, that we can depend upon them. David looks back at how God has worked in his life, and all he can do is praise. I know several really godly people who are facing health issues or, or coming to the end of this life and they say, I've had a good life. God has been so good to me here and I'm ready to see him fully now. And that process of reflection is so helpful that we shouldn't just wait until a health crisis to do it for ourselves. David shows us that it is, it is looking back that allows us to look forward. It is seeing how God has moved before that gives us confidence to know him acting again. So whether you do this by talking with people, by sharing stories, or maybe privately journaling or looking through old photos, look back and see the goodness of God. You could talk about it with your family or, or add it in as a section to your devotional time. But whether you're going through painful times now or just need to prepare for them, Try and get into the habit of looking back and seeing God's goodness. That's, that's chapter two, that's looking back. But the key to this section is not just in the looking back, it's also in the looking forward. So turn with me to chapter 23. Here David shifts from Psalm to prophecy, from looking back at how God established the kingdom to looking forward to how God will establish a new kingdom. He begins by making it obvious that this is God who is speaking. Look at verse 1. He calls this an inspired utterance by the man anointed by God. And that God, the God of Jacob, 
the covenant-making God of his people. So David is giving reasons to take this prophecy really seriously. It's from God, delivered through one of his specially chosen, by the God who keeps his promises. And then verse 2, again, look with me, shows that God is speaking and again emphasizes that God is the God of Israel, the God who keeps promises and can be depended upon. So the effect of this extended intro is really to magnify the importance of what is about to come. And it's now then that we hear what God has to say. Now, most translations try to make this smoother in English because it's, it's pretty vague in, in the Hebrew, but what we get here is a statement about an ideal ruler, about one who is to come who will rule righteously and with fear of the Lord. This is one anointed one pointing to the anointed one, one king pointing to the king. The king is to come, the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And the coming of this ruler is like the sun on a cloudless morning. There's loads of potential poetic meaning of that. The, the sun was pictured as governing the day in Genesis. It, it obviously brings life, and, and there's a sense of light and goodness that is associated with it. But added to the rain and the grass in the next line, it's probably about this king's rule allowing his people to flourish. When this king comes, when Jesus comes, he brings life. He brings flourishing. Having walked through all those ways in which God has been good in the past, here David looks forward to the future and he can hardly describe just how good God is. He gives a monumental build-up to really stress this one small life-changing truth. God is coming. He looks forward and knows that a day is coming when every tear will be wiped away and all his pains will cease. And it gives him hope and patience and joy. And after the prophecy in verse 5, David shows that his hope for the future is certain because of this. His hope for the future stems from and is nourished by God's promises. Look at verse 5. If my house were not right with God, so he's talking about his family line there, he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. Now, don't forget that this is probably after seeing Absalom fall, after seeing the terrible state of his own household. But even then, when things seem so dismal, he can rejoice because God has made a covenant with him and he can rest upon that. He can look to the future through God's promises and not his own interpretation. He can walk by faith and not by sight. So David, whose story arc seems to have faded at this point, says, surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. Can you hear the confidence that he speaks with? There is some certainty about God's goodness at work in his life because of who he knows God to be, because of the covenant promises that God has given to him, David can look forward to the goodness of God as something which is absolutely certain. For many of us, we are great at looking back. 
Our Christian lives are a pure response to what God has done for us. We live out of thankfulness to what Christ has done, and that's really, really great. But the danger there is that service becomes purely an obligation, a thing of duty and not joy. Well, if that's you, then the balance for that is to look forward to the joy that is set before us. That's not saying serve so that you will get things, but just in our service, as we serve, we get glimpses of what is already sure to come about. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. What it's saying is that knowing that our ultimate goal is not in this world changes how we think about our circumstances, about our goals and ambitions, and gets us to act now in light of the eternity that awaits us. I know a lady, not in this church, but who said to me, why should I give to this church if I'm not getting anything back from it? What would it do to her mindset if she saw giving not as a transactional thing to receive benefits here, but a practice that God asks of her to prepare her heart for eternity with him? What would it do for the person who doesn't really share in community here if he realized that we're going to spend eternity together? What would it do for your prayer life or your grumbling heart or your discontentment if you daily saw just the glory that lies ahead of you? What would it do for your career choices, your holiday plans, the hobbies you choose to take up, if you were constantly searching for that next glimpse of what you will one day experience in full? It is the looking forward, the realizing that our God keeps his promises and that he has given us such great promises to hope in that shapes so much of our life now. C.T. Studd said this, Someone to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Why desire, why desire to live within a yard of hell? Because it is, because it is there that you will ca catch glimpses of God redeeming and saving people. You get to catch glimpses of his glory breaking through the mire of sin and apathy that we face on a daily basis. When we become captivated by the truth and beauty of heaven, we want to align our lives as closely as possible so that we can hear the hum of grace on the wind. The book of Samuel concludes by getting us to look forward to the coming of the king. Brothers and sisters, we know the reality of his first coming. But if you want to grow in the joy and hope for the future, then don't forget to look to his second coming as well and all that it brings. Align your lives and all that you do with the glorious certainty that our God reigns and that he will reign into eternity. I'm going to pause there so we can pray together. If anything's been said this evening and you want to pray afterwards, come and grab someone. Or you can chat on the tea and coffee. But let's just, let's just pause there.
to consider all that our God has done. Let's pray. Lord God, we can't even begin to thank you for your work on the cross. We can't even begin to acknowledge the debt that we had to you and how you've paid it, Lord, the grace that you've shown us, beggar's belief. We don't understand this good news, Lord, but we rejoice in knowing that you have plucked us out of hell's jaws and set us at your table. Lord, we thank you so much for all the goodness you've given us, for all the things you do in our lives, for bringing us here, for giving us a family in this church. But Lord, as well, we look forward in utter disbelief and utter joy in knowing that this is just a taste of what we will receive when we get to see you face to face. Lord, let us fix our minds and our hearts on what you have promised us. Let us be certain of your goodness in our lives. And let us be molded by the hope and the knowledge of the eternity that waits before us. Speak to us now, Lord. For it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up and ask that you would stand with me as we respond to what God has given for us tonight. We're going to sing our final piece, raising our voices to the God of our salvation, who keeps his promises to us and who will come again. So let's stand and sing, the Lord is my salvation. Mm -hmm.